and lifting up on high. And we pray today, Father, that our time of worship together has prepared our heart to take in the truths that you want to speak into each one of our lives, Lord, congregationally and individually. We thank you that we find life in your word. We thank you, Father, that it, it goes into our lives and it, and it accomplishes what you have purposed it to do. So today, Lord, as we look at just a few ver- verses, there's eternal purpose in it. And I pray that we'd reverence these truths, knowing that your son was a word become flesh. We bless your holy name, Lord, and we ask that, that each one of our hearts be sensitive to your presence and the very thing that you want to connect with us on today. This isn't routine, Lord. We're not into rituals. We've got a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that we want to develop and deepen. So may that take place today, Lord, in our time together with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, finishing up some final exhortations of Paul. Great day to take communion, to hopefully reflect and remember the depth of how much we're loved. May this never become routine. May this never become ritualistic. May it be real. May it be relational. We're here to connect with Jesus, right? You're not here to hear me. You're here to meet with Him. And we meet with Him through the Word of God. So, as we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm glad we kind of cut last week because there, there was a lot of exhortations there. A lot of church responsibility, our ministry to one another, our hearts for one another, that we're part of a body, and it goes beyond leadership. It goes beyond you ministering to the person next to you, in front of you, on the other side of the sanctuary. Being sensitive to the Spirit, being in connection with Him so that we can see the needs that are here, that everybody would leave here blessed and built. That's what God wants to do today. He wants to bless and he wants to build. Part of that blessing is through words of encouragement, reminders of promises, and some of it's just through flat-out correction. But the bottom line is we hope that we're made a little bit more like Jesus by this word that molds us when it's received. And this was a receiving congregation. It wasn't one ear and out the other. Oh, I already know that. I heard that. I've actually uh, memorized that. Until the Word of God is lived out in a life, it truly hasn't been memorized. So these are Paul's... Now now remember, Paul's living in the Paul moment. We're 2,000 years later, all right? So, you know, he doesn't know that he's going to write to this church again. And he's writing to this church, and it's an imperfect church, just like ours is, and there was some things that needed to be corrected a little bit, but overall it was a very healthy church, and they were doing the work of the ministry, bringing honor and glory to the Lamb of God. And in so doing, you know, Paul, I mean, you you think about it, with his mind, he's writing final words to this church. You think about how much value, some things that he wanted to squeeze in there before he said goodbye or amen. And sometimes we can just crank through these last things in, 
an epistle or a letter here and just boom, blow right by him. But there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of depth in there, a lot of things that need to be exercised so that the church would be healthy and so Christ would be glorified. And, you know, last week we saw it. We saw the church's heart towards the leadership, the church's heart towards one another, and all of our hearts towards God. And that's where we're picking up today. Now, verse 18 is where we're going to be picking up, and it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. <laughs> so easy to do, isn't it? I'll tell you what, our Father would never ask us to do something that he would not enable us to do. And the bottom line is, embracing where you're at today and in where you're at today, it's being thankful and being grateful. I believe today that we can give thanks for whatever's taking place in our life because it's the climactic work of God's great plan for us in the story of our lives. Today's challenges sometimes are for the final, the final chapters for God's glory in our lives. We don't see it. We don't always see it. Why or how? But you remember Joseph in Egypt, and that's a reference point everybody goes to when you look at this. And, and he saw the sovereign God through the lens of faith, that God was with him, God loved him, and God was in control. That's what Joseph knew. But if our God's Joseph's God, do we know that today? Do I know that no matter what's putting pressure on me, what is disturbing me, what I'm struggling with today, do we understand and believe that God is with me, that God loves me, and that God's in control? Because we serve the only God that came alive from the dead, left behind an empty tomb, came back from the grave. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians with me real quick. When you're there, go, now go to Philippians. <laughs> I was just testing you to see if you're awake, because I know Jake's sleeping. We were discussing this at the Young Adults the other night, and I just, I, I love what we see here, okay? Uh, Philippians 4, that's where we're going to be. And we're going right to the end. Now, if you don't know your Bible history or your church history, we, we recognize that, that Paul the Apostle, he died a martyr. His head was removed from his body by Caesar Nero. And this is when Paul was first under house arrest. And we see here that, that something pretty cool took place. Verse 22, or I'm sorry, verse 20. Now unto God our Father, this is Paul writing from, to the Philippians. Now unto God 
and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's all he cared about. He says, now unto God, or salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren which are with me, they greet you, okay? So the other believers that are with me here, they say hello to you, they greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are a Caesar's household. <laughs> Go to Philippians chapter 1. And in everything we can give thanks because there's a bigger picture of what we do not see. Paul says this in verse 12, Philippians 1.12, but I, I would, you should understand, brethren, the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Okay, so the things that he was going through that were so difficult, it was actually promoting the kingdom work. It wasn't easy for him, but it was glorifying to Jesus so that by my, by my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord are waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. My imprisonment is creating courage in other believers. It's becoming contagious. They're waxing stronger. So that they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Proverbs tells us that like spiders find their way into king's palaces. <laughs> That's the way Christians are. The gospel can penetrate the most forbidden walls. And you know what it does? It takes a Paul the Apostle who maintains a heart and connection with God, a thankful heart, always giving God thanks. He did that in Philippi when him and Silas were in their, you know, their worshiping in the Philippian jail when they were beaten. And you know what it does? He, he puts them right there underneath Caesar's nose and the people in his house were getting saved right under his nose. You can turn back to Philippians. Whatever. I'm tired today. You know where to flip to. Give me a hard time. I'm tired. <laughs> but Ephesians 5.22 says, giving thanks always for all things. Okay, and the reference to this is really going into, into uh, Paul's longest dialogue on, on marriage. Uh, marriage roles, husband and wives roles. Okay, and, and he really speaks about giving thanks for all things marriage, really giving thanks for the imperfect spouse that God just gave you. Giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I always use this at weddings when I do weddings. That when I reference this chapter, I include this verse as it walks into the roles. Because the bottom line is, when you look at your life, your, your, God's great goal for your life is that you be saved and know Him. And once you're saved and you begin to know Him, you develop this relationship, God is accomplishing things in your life. You've been preordained to be conformed in the image of His Son. He wants to make you and me more like Jesus. So you know when they're up there giving their vows and Mr. Perfect's marrying Mrs. Perfect because they ain't done life together yet.
I remind them that it's going to be through the imperfections of the one that you're making a vow to that God's going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to mold into our character unconditional love, divine forgiveness, the mercy and the grace and the patience. Life right now for most people is tricky. We're living at the end days, all right? We're, we're at the precipice of Jesus coming back for his church. And if, if you don't believe that, then you're not reading your Bible and looking around. And things can be very difficult. But, you know, I remember this poem that Corey Ten Boone wrote. And I remember she was in the concentration camps. And it's called The Weaving. She wrote, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow, and I am foolish pride. Forget to see, forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in a weaver's skillful hand is the threads of gold and silver in a pattern he has planned. He knows he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. That was a woman who didn't write this on some beach somewhere, but got this inspiration from her experiences in a concentration camp where she lost some of her own family members. In all things, give thanks. For this is the will of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When her children were rebelling against the Lord, Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, found herself occasionally torn apart by worry. One night while abroad, she awoke suddenly in the middle of the night worrying about her son. Current of worry surged through her like an electric shock. She lay in bed, tried to pray, but she suffered from galloping anxiety, one fear piling upon another. She looked at the clock and it was about three o'clock. She was exhausted, yet she knew she would be unable to go back to sleep. And suddenly the Lord seemed to say to her, Quit studying the problems and start studying the promises. She turned on the light, got out her Bible, and the first verse that came to her were these, Philippians 4, 6-7. As she read those words, she suddenly realized that the missing ingredient in her prayers had been thanksgiving. In everything, in prayer, in petition, with thanksgiving, because we're hear about in everything giving thanks present your request to God she put down her Bible spent time worshiping God for who and what he is and she later wrote I began to thank God for giving me this one I love so dearly in the first place I even thanked him for the difficult spots which had taught me so much and you know what happened it was as if someone turned on the light in my mind and heart and the little fears and worries that had been nibbling away in the darkness like mice and cockroaches hurriedly scuttled for cover that was when I learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart they are mutually exclusive in everything Give thanks. So today we embrace the process of what God is doing with gratitude. Wherever you're at, I don't know your whole story. You don't know my whole story. God knows all our stories. And wherever you're at, 
embrace the process of what God is doing with gratitude. Verse 19 says, quench not the spirit. Now, I tried to pull a quick one today on you all, but it just got complicated. You know, the Holy Spirit's the power source to the church, and I was going to have Harley throw the, the switch to the whole church. Just dump all the electric. But as I got thinking about it, I was like, oh gosh, and the Sunday school workers are going to have a hard time down there, and our Facebook thing wouldn't come up, and the sound system wouldn't reboot. So, so you get the picture. But, but, but literally, quench not the Spirit. It's so important that we realize that the Holy Spirit's the motor of the church. And without a motor, you're not going anywhere. Without that power source, you can't do what you were designed to do. And, and in the text here, it, it, it gives an inclination in the Greek that, that there was some quenching of the Spirit going on there in this church, even though this was a healthy church. But J.B. Phillips uh, translates it like this, never damp the fire of the Spirit. Never damp the fire of the Spirit. Don't put out the Holy Spirit's fire. And, and one of the things we need to recognize is a way that you can put out a fire was quit feeding it. You quit feeding the fire. I got a coal stove at home, and I'll tell you, sometimes I'll come walking in my house, and it's like 40 in there. I'm like, oh, fire's out. You know, so what do I do? Well, I'm hoping that there's a few embers that are still burning. And if there's a few embers that are still, I just start feeding it a little bit at a time. A little bit, of, and it's a process of time, but you know what happens is I, I continue to feed that. I put the small pieces of coal on what's burning there, and, and eventually it takes a while, but all of a sudden that fire starts going again. I think one of the most terrifying scriptures in the Bible, one of them, is found in Judges 16.20, and it's reference to Samson, that he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. And not knowing that and going forth without God's power, he marched himself right into defeat, into bondage, and into captivity. Now, here's a blessing for you and I as New Testament saints, as is part of the church and the bride of Christ. Uh, we're extremely blessed because Jesus tells us this, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another. The Greek is olos. It's literally of the same kind. So the, the Holy Spirit is the same as Jesus. What does that mean? That means he's God. All right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and he shall give you another, the same kind, another comforter, and he. Now the Holy Spirit isn't a it, and it's not a force. It's a he. He's God. And he says he's going to abide with you forever. So we don't have to ever worry if we're genuinely saved about the Holy Spirit stepping out of our life. But one of the things that we do need to make sure is that we are not quenching him, not quenching his work, not putting out the fire that he's trying to build in each one of our lives. So quench not the Spirit. How? Well, first of all, if you're here today, there's one unforgivable sin in the Bible. One. And that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. And that literally means that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and accept the gift that God has provided on that cross for forgiveness of sins, that Christ would become our Lord and Savior, and, and, and you're speaking against it. No, talking yourself out of it. No, I don't need that. Spirit's telling you, you need Jesus Christ. Your flesh is telling you, no, you don't need it. That's one of the ways you quench the Spirit. And the thing that's so sad about that is you forfeit eternal life. You forfeit eternal life because you have not responded to what the Holy Spirit is doing, trying to bring you to salvation through Christ and everlasting life. 
Another way we can quench the Spirit is not responding to His promptings. You know, when the Holy Spirit's telling us to do something, leading us to do something. By choosing not to obey, by choosing not to take a step of faith. That's one of the ways that we can quench Him. Another way is by not exercising the gifts that He's invested in our lives that are designed to build up the body of Christ. So each one of us here, once you're saved, God puts a gift in you. And that gift is designed to be exercised so that you can bring benefit to the church, to the body of Christ, and to the work of the kingdom. Another way that we can grieve him is relying on something or someone other than him to do life and to do ministry. We can't do it without him. The main text, I believe, of Calvary Chapel is not by might nor by power, but by his spirit, saith the Lord. It's got to be a work of the spirit. Not living in full dependence of his empowering. Many people can have a higher IQ. They can be better articulators. They can be, have a greater education. But where we have to have them beat is that we realize we can't do it. In and of ourselves. And we rely on him and we depend on him. And we call upon him and ask him to fill us so that we can operate in the strength of the spirit. And not just as natural individuals. Tony Evans says this, to grieve the spirit or to quench the spirit is like letting corrosion build up on a battery so that the power of the battery cannot be accessed. And in the life of the Christian, when the Holy Spirit is grieved, the charge and the power available, it's declined or it's lost. And I think that if there's two emphasis, I I could really put on today's church what it really needs is the church today needs to be a prayer church and it needs to be a Holy Spirit dependent church. Those are some of the things that are greatly needed in our lives here as we're living at the end times. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, he goes, I put you in remembrance that you would stir or rekindle, fan into flame the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. He's telling Timothy, man, you've got to stir that back up. And, and that's today, now. That's at this moment for you and I. Our hope is that through this, that we would stimulate within us a building up and urge us to go and do so that we can have the purpose fulfilled in our lives for what we were designed for. And we don't have to do it in our strength. Samuel Chadwick said this, Men ablaze are invincible. Hell trembles when men kindle. And we've got to be honest with ourselves Where is our fire for Jesus Christ? And if we're honest with ourselves and say, you know what, it's it's flickering, it's it's there a little bit, what is quenching it? What do I have going on in my life that's quenching it? And what do I need to do to start feeding it again? What's my worship life like? What's my prayer life like? What's my time in a word connecting with Jesus Christ like? What's my dependence in asking him, being filled with the Holy Spirit? How, how, how much am I really leaning on him? Because Christian life and Christian ministry can get very frustrating when we're operating in a natural and we're not seeing fruit and results for the glory of God. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Okay. Now I've had this before. Uh, I remember years ago, I, I was just getting ready. I was up here doing my pace thing, 
uh, watching you guys all greet one another. And uh, one of the ladies from the church came up and she goes, Jeff, I felt like during worship, God gave me a word. I'm like, all right. And she started, if you want to share it with the church. And, and uh, she started sharing with me. And, you know, it was a good word, you know. And I thought, man, you know, I think God really did meet with her on that. And, you know, I was just, I had other things on my mind. And, and I come walking up to the pulpit. And I'm trying to get ready here. And, and the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he said, quench not the Spirit. And so I invited her up. I said, you want to come up and share that word? And maybe you were here and you remember. It was some kind of a reference about the little cracks in our home where the enemy's getting through and shoring those things up, kind of like Nehemiah. I can't remember, but I really felt like it came from the Lord. And uh, I, a lot of people had commented about it before. And, you know, I, th- I think it met with people. And I was just trying to be obedient to the Lord because not everybody that comes up to me and says, hey, I got something to share with the church is going to share with the church. You know what I mean? Turn into a clown show, whatever. But but that one really, I, I felt like really was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and and I didn't want to despise uh, the prophesying of, of what this person said. So despise prophesying. Now we had another situation. Actually, I wasn't here. One of the other pastors was teaching, and and, and this guy came up and said, "Hey, man, I got a word for you," and it was a message of judgment and destruction to the church, and. Uh, you know, it was funny because uh, as we talked about it, it was brought to me and we were just talking about it, uh, we recognized the, uh, the character that it came from. And this character had a lot of unbiblical stuff going on in his life outside of church. So that prophetic thing we took as a, a false prophecy, and I think God proved that to be true. But prophecy really here despise not prophesying. Prophecy can be foretelling or foretelling. Right now, I am foretelling you prophetic truths because it's the Bible. And, and Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 14, but he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. And that's what we're hoping takes place. Now, there can be foretelling. I had a guy that used to come here, and he'd come up to me. He goes, hey, Jeff, I got a word for you. I want to pray for you. And all of a sudden, it was like God gave him the word of knowledge. I mean, he's praying over me and hitting me right at the areas of my life where I needed to be ministered to, you know. So that gift is out there for sure. But you got to be real careful with it. Despise not prophesying. Verse 21 tells us this. Prove all things. Now, when Paul left Thessalonica, he went to this small community of believers called Berea. And you've been exhorted uh, from this pulpit before that these were the individuals, they heard what Paul had to say, but then they would go back and search the scriptures to see whether it was true. And that's what Paul saw with that group of believers. And I wonder if that was part of the inspiration because that's what I want you to be. I want you to be Bereans. You take the things that I'm sharing with you and you go back to the Bible and see if these things are true. You have to keep me in check. I would never get up here and purposely misteach, but I can misspeak. And this is what Paul's saying here. He says, prove all things and, and, and hold back or, or uh, hold fast to that which is good. Test all the things. Test them all biblically. You know, make sure what you're hearing lines up with what the Word of God says. This is the litmus test right here. You bring it back to the Bible. What's the Bible say? Because this is the anchor of truth for the believer. 
And it's not that we just do it biblically, but we also do it personally. What do I mean by that? Is that we've got to test ourselves. I believe that it's going to be a blink of an eye and we're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ that each one of us is going to receive the things done in this body according to what we've done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And it's so important for us to allow the Word of God to test our hearts. And if we know this now, we will have no excuses, we will accept no excuses for ourselves that we want to be prepared to meet Jesus face to face. And I'm hoping that the teachings that you hear from this pulpit are preparing you to meet Christ. That this word is going out like medicine, that it's going out like an alignment machine, and it's doing what it needs to do in our life so that we can be everything we're designed to be for God. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. God's truth is our life anchor. What happens if if you don't hold on to what is good? You can actually slip away. You can drift away. And we got to be honest with ourselves. What are we holding on to today? Because sometimes we can hold on to things that'll actually, or hold on to people that'll actually pull us away from Jesus Christ. That can actually cause us to drift away. And sometimes God will take something out of us or take someone from us, relocate them, whatever it might be, because he cares so much that you and I would just be holding on to the things that are good. That are going to take us in the right direction. Bring us closer to Jesus Christ. And he's telling the church here, make sure you know what the truth is. Line it up with the scriptures and don't let go of the good things in life. Don't let go of the good things that I've given you. Verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Woost, who's a Greek scholar, says, be holding yourself back from every form of evil. Every form of evil. Hold yourself back from it. This is what it says about Job, right? Job was one that feared God and he eschewed evil. He kept himself from evil. A man who made it the habit of his life to keep turning from evil. These are choices. These are decisions. This is what Paul is saying here. Abstain literally means put a distance between you. All appearance of evil. That which strikes the eye. Put a distance between. 2 Timothy tells us the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone that names Christ depart from iniquity. Abstain from iniquity. The root of the English is apostasy. Fall away from iniquity. We know that one of the signs of Christ coming back is that there would be an apostasy. People would fall away from the faith. Where they would drift away, where they would turn from, where they would withdraw from Jesus and the truth of his word. But we're being exhorted here by Paul the apostle that we would apostatize from evil, that we would withdraw from it. To withdraw from a place, an association, or a relationship. And the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly. 
And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very God of peace sanctify you. It means to make you holy. It means to set you apart for God. We're set apart for God. That's the way that we've got to see ourselves. Paul says, I'm praying for you, church. I'm praying that you would be separated. Big difference between separated and isolated. We don't isolate, we separate. What's that mean? Well, isolate isolate speaks of the physical, our physical location, our physical condition. Separate speaks of the spiritual condition, our spiritual location. We can be with these people. We can hear things, but we're not letting them get in. We're not letting the influence get there because we recognize that we've been bought with a price. And we're set apart for the purposes of God. He prays for separation, that we'd be preserved blameless. And he's the one that's going to do it. Under the coming of our Lord, living with the end in sight, blameless though, when we're blameless, we recognize that Christ is coming. John says that we, we, when we really remember this, we purify ourselves even as he's pure. Colossians tells us that, that God will present us blameless, or Jesus will present us because of his death and because of his blood blameless before the throne of God. It speaks of our positional standing. I mean, think about it. We're going to celebrate communion here today, but, but we need to remember this. Second Corinthians tells us that he made him to be sin for us. He didn't know any sin, that we, we might be the righteousness of God in him. We are in the right standing with God. We are blameless and we've been made whole because we've been reconciled through the cross and through the blood of Christ. And that's the way God sees us today. Now, we recognize on the practical aspect, day by day, we're trying to go from glory to glory and live our lives in a way that pleases God. But positionally, the way that God sees you now, because of the blood covering of his son, we're made righteous. We're righteous. That's the way God sees us. We're blameless. And Paul says, I want you to be preserved blameless until he comes back. Verse 24 says, faithful is he that calls you. It's his work. Embrace it. Yield to it. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will do it. We need to remember that that so much of getting to where God wants to take us in our lives as Christians is just yielding to him. That's it. Just yielding to him. Embracing the work that he's doing. Philippians tells us, for it's God which worketh in you. So who's working it? We're not working for God. It's God working in us, to, in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's what God's trying to accomplish in each one of our lives. What does it take? It takes surrender. It takes letting him do it. So he's the faithful one. And we, he's looking for his church to trust him. To trust him to do the work in us and to do the work for us that needs to be due. Faithful, to win, to persuade, worthy of belief, trust, and confidence. Isn't Jesus worthy of that? He will do it. Do what? He'll sanctify us. The same one that saved us is the same one that will sanctify us, set us apart, and the same one that will glorify us.
He will do it. He'll do it in our role as spouses, parents, Sunday school workers, the witness that we've been called to be at the workplace. Brethren, pray for us. So Paul's asking this church to pray for them. One of the blessings that he should be able to receive is really the instrument that God used to bring the work of God there in that region. And the only thing that he asked for, just pray for us. When God started this ministry, I tried to make an inward vow, and hopefully I've kept it, to not ask anybody here for anything but prayer. I hope I've kept that. A true minister is here to serve and to give and doesn't expect to be served and to take. But so many of you have gone above and beyond just praying for us. And your love has been nothing more than refreshing. God uses you to a great degree. Greet the holy brethren, or greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. It ain't going to happen. Handshake, hug, whatever. It's a different day. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. This was the charge. It's literally to put to an oath or make them swear. And I've answered that charge to God. This epistle, whoever reads it, they're charged that it be read unto all the holy brethren. And we have accomplished that here today, the last couple months here at Old Paz. But, but when you look at something here, I want you to see something that, that's really important. It, is that as Paul concludes here, now remember, uh, just some final statements. Verse 25, 26, and 27 are this. He ends the epistle on a note of paramount importance, right? Pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss and read that epistle. Prayer, fellowship, and the word. Healthy church. Sandwiched between faith, faithful is he who calls you, and grace that we're going to see here at the end. Now, if you will, let's, let's close out in uh, Romans chapter 8. His final statement, he says in verse 28, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Grace is the Greek word cherish. You find it throughout the word of God, especially the New Testament, but it literally is God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. Look what it says in Romans 8, 31, because I don't want you to ever forget this. He says, what can... What shall we then say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? You've got to know that today, that God's for you. He might not be for some of the attitudes that we're carrying or some of the actions that we've maybe carried out, but the bottom line is God wants to work in a way 
to help us with those things that we struggle with because God is for us. It's super important in these twisted days that, that, that we live in to remember that, that the grace of God for us, it's, it, it's not a license to sin, but it's a liberty not to. In the source of our grace, John 1.17 says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. When did the grace of God appear? At the incarnation. The three-year ministry. The crucifixion. The resurrection. And His ascension. That's when grace appeared. Grace is Christ. Christ is the proof that God is for us. Everything that he said, everything that he did, everything that he is, is the proof and the validation that, that God be for us. Now we're going to take communion today. Communion's a wonderful time to just be refreshed. And we're, we're supposed to do this in remembrance of Him until He comes back for us. We don't do it every Sunday because we don't want it to become a ritual. We try to aim for the first Sunday of the month. And we hope that it's something very special. Because I think communion really gives us the opportunity for all of us to walk out of here with a clean slate. And, and I don't know about you, but a lot of times I need my slate cleaned. But as I was thinking about communion today, and I, you know, share your typical communion passages, I want you to think about this passage. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I'm known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We're taking communion today is a remembrance that our good shepherd has laid down his life for this flock. And that shouldn't mean something to you. That should mean everything to you. That should mean everything to me. It should mean everything to us. Because apart from that work, we'd be lost forever, separated from God forever, separated from anything good, loving forever banished from the presence of Almighty God. And there's people in here that care and there's people in here that don't care. But I'm here to celebrate the fact that He cared. And I'm here to ask you this question. Who's your shepherd? I think it's something that we have to ask ourselves. Who Who's your shepherd? David knew his shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd. Twice he says, he leadeth me. Jesus said this, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me.
to follow is way beyond just acknowledge or confess to be true. Follow speaks of an action that is linked to a heart condition. We've been here today about 1.5 hours. So if Jesus truly is our shepherd, the answer would be found in the remaining 166 and a half hours that this week reveals to us who we are, who we truly are. Thank God we're here. It's good to gather together. But are we following him? Because when I think about the cross, when I think about everything that he suffered because of this wicked sinner that I am, I've deemed this. He's worth following with all of our hearts. Not just half of it, not with most of it, but full surrender, following him with all of our hearts. Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. He loved you and he gave himself for you. And we get to take communion today and you know it's a time just to kind of sit with the Lord and and really give him thanks. And to let him work with the heart. To have his way in us, with us. So that hopefully if we've come in with chains or struggles or something holding on to us, that, that the love and the work of the cross sets us free so we can walk out lifted with joy, purpose for the weak. Because we're kingdom workers. And the way we choose to live this life matters. On the timeline of eternity, this is our moment. This is where we get to shine. This is where we get to seize the opportunities that are out there because it's never been darker and we should never be lighter. And if that doesn't motivate it, empowered by the Holy Spirit, nothing will. So may the Spirit move in a way as we reflect on the death of Christ that, that He would return to us the joy of our salvation. being flooded in our heart with a love and a joy and a peace of God that he died for us to save us, to forgive us, past, present, future. We got heaven ahead. Father, we thank you for what you did, what you were willing to do, the willingness of Jesus to choose your will and to lay down his life for us so that we could be saved. Lord, I can't thank you enough for being such a good shepherd. And Lord, for loving us as sheep even when we stray. To love us so much you'd even leave the 99 to go after one. But we bless you for the gift that it is to be a member of your flock.
and we could only join your flock through the blood that you shed to make us a sheep in your pasture. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you'd come as we take communion and as we just take our minds to Calvary and we see through the lens of faith in our heart God the Son crucified on that Roman cross for each one of us. We see Him looking on the needs of His mother We see him looking on the needs of a thief. We see him looking on our needs. And we know that that was the joy set before him. And that's why he endured the cross. Help us to be ever so grateful that no matter what we're facing, that he rose again the third day to be with us forever. You're with us and you love us. I pray as we take communion, Lord, that only as you can, that you would meet each one of us right where we're at and that you'd minister deep into the core of our soul. Cause us to leave here today lifted, encouraged and blessed and ready for the rest of this day and a week ahead walking with you and fulfilling your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.